Today's news bulletin and the story is kicking off from Mackay with a schoolgirl critically injured. At the girls' school today, Beryl Connell, aged seven, brought a pair of scissors for sewing lessons, and as she was running to the playground with the scissors in her hand, she fell on the instrument, which was forced into the left side of her abdomen, resulting in a serious injury. She was taken to a private hospital. Her condition is critical. This message that you shouldn't run with scissors coming from the Northern Miner in Charters Towers, Queensland. For Thursday, February 13, 1930... This was the news. This was the news is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news update. Straight out of newspapers from across Australia, I'm Broderick Matthews, here to make old stories news again. Today's news comes from 1930, a time in Australia when Prime Minister Scullin was in place, but the Great Depression continued on following the Wall Street crash of 1929. That wasn't the only thing crashing, though, in the Depression, with the Sydney Morning Herald noting that the trams were operating at a loss of around £200,000 for the year just gone, after making just a small profit of £11,000 the year before. Meanwhile, though, spending was happening, according to the advertiser in Adelaide, with the announcement of the £15,000 new Edwin Smith stand to be built at the Adelaide Oval. Over in Melbourne, The Age reported on the opening of the Spencer Street Bridge, but that wasn't the only bridge hitting the news, with a small bridge in Sydney making a bit of an effect, and this story from the Bernie Advocate shows how. During his recent visit to Sydney, Senator Herbert Hayes was shown over a part of Sydney Harbour Bridge, which is now in the course of construction. Senator Hayes said that he had often seen the structure from a distance, but it was not until one actually got to it that one realised its gigantic proportions. It was expected that both ends of the main arch would be connected in October next, and then the construction of the roadways would have to be undertaken. Four sets of steel rails for train traffic would be constructed, in addition to roads and paths for vehicular and foot traffic. Senator Hayes said that in the construction of this, the biggest bridge in the world, some of the most wonderful machinery in existence was being used. Huge steel planing and other machines shaped the various parts to a nicety, and everything was fitted together as exactly as the parts of a piece of furniture in the hands of an expert and careful cabinet maker. It is expected that the bridge will be open for traffic in 1932, and that deadline was met, although Sydney Harbour Bridge now is no longer the largest bridge, but the seventh longest steel arch bridge in existence. Let's turn the page now to a story out of Melbourne on a counterfeiting plant. The Age with this report on spurious coins. Following on the arrest of a man who is alleged to have had a number of counterfeit florins in his possession, plainclothes constable Smedley and other plainclothes constables at Williamstown received information that two suitcases containing parts of a small plant for the manufacture of spurious coins had been thrown into the Maribyrnong River near the railway bridge between South Kensington and Footscray. 
Now, I did say that the man was caught with florins in his pocket. If you're not sure what a florin is, it's worth two shillings or 24 pence. Or in today's value, based on the 1930s, it would be worth about $8.40. So not that much money. The story continues to say that the plainclothes police officers learned that when one of the men was arrested, his accomplice, fearing immediate arrest, was thrown into a panic. Hastily dismantling the coining plant, he packed it into two suitcases and cast it into the river. Yesterday, a harbour trust diver located one of the suitcases on the bed of the river. When it was hauled to the surface, it was found to contain coins, files, knives, pliers, pincers, screwdrivers, a hammer, brushes, a gas ring, antimony, plaster of Paris, 16 pairs of moulds, mould frames, pieces of new tin, bottles of oil, metal filings and scrapings, and other material which the police consider could be used in the making of counterfeit coins. The discovery was made after the diver had been at work for over two and a half hours. Yes, everything but the kitchen sink there found by the diver. And it sounds like a lot of equipment and a lot of work just to make coins worth uh, $8 a time. But those were different times indeed. Let's turn the page again from those trying to flaunt the rules to an interesting rule about our vehicles. This piece in the Sydney Morning Herald talking about car taillights. New South Wales is the only place in the whole world, according to the Royal Automobile Club of Australia, where the regulation insisting on the switch of motorcar taillights is being situated outside the driver's compartment of a motor vehicle. The club is of the opinion that the Act should be amended to bring this state into line with the rest of the world and permit the light switch being switched on or off from the main switchboard. Can you imagine that? Having the switch for your taillights being outside the car. The article continues with comments from the club saying it is extraordinary that other countries, including those where motor cars are manufactured and where the volume of traffic is enormous, do not find it necessary to adopt such a regulation. If the taillight was wired through the same switch that controls the headlights, interference with the taillights which has been known to occur through the agency of mischievous boys, would then be impossible. I love the mention of mischievous boys, those boys switching off the taillights. It would also then be out of the question for the car to travel with the taillight extinguished. Again, there is the other side of the question from the motor owner's point of view. The alteration of the wiring system of every car which comes to New South Wales must be paid for, the cost of which is of course passed on to the car buyer. Overall, this does seem like a silly retrofit indeed. When electric lights were first fitted to cars, it was easiest to have the switches on the outside with the lights. But as electronics progressed, so did cars, and you could have the switch on the inside. Yet New South Wales still insisted on making you put it back on the outside. Now, before we go to a break, we still have our main story with this piece on a lion coming to us from the Northern Star in Lismore. An unrehearsed turn at a circus in Byron Bay last night hardly merited an encore, though it produced a thrill. In the early part of the entertainment, the door of the lioness's cage was accidentally left unfastened, and when the cage was removed, the door flew open, the lioness jumped out and wandered about the marquee. The audience were asked to keep orderly, and it was explained that the lioness was very tame. 
After a time, the animal became tired of the marquee and wandered outside to explore Byron Bay Township. After crossing the railway level crossing, the lioness went along Shirley Street and crossed Johnston Street and then made its way towards the Esplanade. Night surf, however, apparently did not appeal to the lioness, and she went along and entered a side street and went into an outhouse. There she stayed until a cage containing another lion was brought and she was enticed to go back to captivity. The program at the circus was held up for 20 minutes. I love this story and it was reported in multiple papers across Australia, but the version that made me laugh most was that reported in the Northern Minor of Charters Towers, where someone had clearly misheard, because rather than reporting on the circus in Byron Bay, they said that the lioness escaped from a performance in Bombay. Yes, that must have been a bad telephone line there when they relayed that story. We're going to take a short break now for some advertisements. Gin pills will help you. Don't suffer the agonies of backache, rundown, feeling or kidney troubles of any kind. But remember that Dr Sheldon's gin pills were specially designed to banish all these ailments. No matter how long you have suffered, how old you are or what you have used before, you should try Dr Sheldon's gin pills. They are sure to help you as it is practically impossible to take them into the human system without benefiting. They help you from the very first dose, banish backache and make your kidneys strong and healthy once again. That's Dr Sheldon's Gin Pills, available for 1 and 9 or 2 and 8. Beauty wins always. All through the ages, tribute has been paid to the power of beauty. History repeats itself over and over again, recording the triumphs of beautiful women. Fisher's beauty pills are the stepping stones to true beauty. By gentle yet effective action on the liver, they maintain the healthful purity of the blood and restore to your skin the bloom of perfect health. Begin a course of Fisher's beauty pills today. They are easy to take, gentle in action and highly efficient. Obtainable from all chemists and storekeepers. Back to the news now, reporting from Thursday 13 February 1930, with this piece out of the Yass Tribune Courier in New South Wales. Tourist bushed. According to a letter read at Monday night's council meeting, tourists making for Canberra frequently find themselves at dog trap. Although politicians and others are very outspoken about the bush capital, one can hardly picture the federal city at dog trap. Mr M. E. Hayes, Honourable Secretary of the Murrumbateman-Gear Progress Association, wrote, I have been instructed to point out to you the necessity of erecting efficient signboards on the junction of the Queanbeyan and Dogtrap roads, most particularly the Canberra board, as tourists are continually mistaking the turn to Canberra and travelling out to Dogtrap. Yes, that's right. Before the times of GPS, you had to follow the signs on the road, and if they weren't there, you could get into trouble. The council decided to inform the writer that the request could not be acceded to as the road was shortly to be deviated. In the meantime, it was not deemed necessary to erect another sign. Hence, tourists may still wander about the scrub at Dog Trap looking for the picturesque Federal Parliament and the avenues of trees which mark the Federal City until the road is altered. 
I actually had a look where Dog Trap is, and I don't think I'd mind turning out there now, because if you did follow the signs to Dog Trap Road, you'd end up in Murrum Bateman, right in the middle of the wine region there, and that doesn't seem like too bad a place to be stuck. Let's turn the page now and have a story about the need for caution in sunbathing. This piece out of the Telegraph in Brisbane, Queensland. Although it would be overstating the position to declare sunbathing a danger, dermatologists recognise that there is peril in it for persons with fair skins or whose skins burn red instead of turning brown when exposed to the sun. I love the restraint in this advice, completely different to what we're told now when we get out in the sun. The article continues on to say, An unsuitable skin, if overexposed to the sun, is likely to develop skin trouble. The city health officer said that while there was no need for alarm, there certainly was need for caution among sunbathers. One good burn might not cause more than a temporary inconvenience, but with a skin that did not pigment, continued exposure might create skin trouble. An officer of the health department said that most of the harmful sunbathing was done under a misapprehension. People sunbathed in the heat. To get the benefit of the ultraviolet rays and to avoid the heat rays, they should sunbathe in the morning or evening instead. That does kind of fit with the advice we receive now, although not necessarily for the right reasons, because it is the ultraviolet rays and not the heat rays that cause the most harm to our skin. The article continues taking a pot shot at fashion. One of the most interesting remarks from the city health officer was that of the present-day fashions for women. Partial nudity and the shingle were already reaping a toll in the form of blemishes from solar rays. He said that precancerous conditions had developed in some cases. He was quoted as saying, A fashion in dress obtaining in Europe and suitable to the climate there is by no means an advisable adoption for Australia. At last, some sensible advice telling us to cover up, although probably doesn't just need to be targeted at the women, but the men too. Skin cancer, the article continues, is relatively more prevalent in Australia than in most other countries. It's hardly a surprising fact, really, considering the advice we were receiving and also our love of being out in the sun and down the beach. And speaking of being down the beach... I found this fantastic little article from the Women's Forum section of The Advocate in Burnie teaching you how to swim. Because, of course, the best way to learn to swim is by reading it in a newspaper. So here's their advice on learning to swim. That this year you will learn to swim. First of all, what about your strokes? Have you really mastered the different leg and arm movements? Or do you think you know how until you get into the water and then find you are completely at sea? Well, it is a good plan to practice your strokes on land till you can do them automatically. Get a piano stool and stretch yourself full length on it face down. Draw up the legs with the knees apart but the feet touching. Now thrust the legs out wide apart like a pair of open compasses. Then close them sharply. Repeat these movements slowly and deliberately. The arm exercises are even simpler and can be mastered in a very short time. Get into the same position as before, but with the legs straight and the arms stretched out in front. Keep the backs of the hands uppermost and the thumbs close together. Then sweep the arms backward and outwards in a line with each other. 
Next, bend the arms, bringing the hands to the side of the chest with the elbows pointing downwards. Then shoot the arms again outwards and forwards with the fingers close together. And now for the water. Although beginners are often advised to learn in a swimming bath, there is much to be said for starting straight away in the sea. The natural buoyancy of the waves helps to keep you above water and you acquire confidence sooner. Wade out to your waist and turn facing the shore. Before attempting to combine the leg and arm movements, practice the arm movements alone underwater, hopping along on one leg. After a few attempts in this way, you'll find you have considerable confidence. Now try the combined movements. Stand as before, with the water up to the waist, lie forward with arms fully extended, and permit your legs to float from the bottom. If you can do this with confidence, the battle is nearly won. Sweep the arms round and backwards, taking care to make the stroke at an even depth below the water. Draw the legs up, and as you shoot out the hands, kick out your legs. Sweep them round and bring them together. In this way, you'll find that when the arms are fully extended, the body is lying horizontally, with the legs almost closed. Practice this slowly, and as soon as you can manage it satisfactorily, you may consider you are well on the way to being able to swim. Yes, a wonderful advice article there. The only piece of advice I think it's missing is to make sure no one else is about while you practice these movements in this way. Let's have a short break. Early in the morning after your night's sleep, when your palate is dry and super sensitive to taste, that is the time when you are a true connoisseur of tea quality. Can you then say, my good morning cup of tea? Indeed, yes, for here is the tea that is scientifically cured so that the fresh flavour of the juice is left in the leaf to spring forth again when steeped in the steaming pot and to put a sparkle of satisfaction in your eyes as you smell its delicious fragrance. It tastes good. It is good. Young, tender leaves from which the juice is never burned out by excessive firing or curing and freedom from bitter tannin dust. Give Bushel's Blue Label its peerless flavour and more cups to the pound than ordinary tea. Finney's Sale of Sales. Perfect Milanese underwear at half prices. Guaranteed perfect by the makers. The loveliest silken undergarments comprising bloomers, undervests, brassieres, princess slips, night dresses, and pyjamas. Also the most delightful pastel-shaded pantettes, petty bloomers, and cami bockers. See these exquisite underthings in the underclothing showroom. Tables full of them in the daintiest colourings. Note, these goods are all guaranteed perfect and are all marked at genuine half prices. That's at Finney's Sale of Sales. And the final news story we have from February 13, 1930, comes to us from the Pingeli Brookton Leader in Western Australia and talks about the moulding of fancy gelatin dishes. There is a strange idea prevalent that fancy moulds are necessary for making the effective gelatin dish. It is entirely erroneous. Mould your jellies in any dish or bowl available. Cake tins and aluminium saucepans are splendid for meat dishes and salads. Yes, you heard right there, folks. Jellies for your meat dish. 
I'm going to continue. Substitute for a border mould is very simple. Place a small wet glass or jar containing a little water in the centre of the wet mould and pour round the liquid gelatin mixture. When firm, fill the glass or jar with warm water and lift it out. Remove the ring from the mould onto a dish and fill the centre with cream or fruit. Exeter pudding is delicious served this way. Double moulding is a delightful method of serving Spanish cream and fruit jelly. Use two dishes of different size but similar shape. If possible, place the large one on ice and in it pour sufficient liquid jelly to form a foundation the same thickness as the width of space between the two moulds. When the layer is firm, place the small mould on it, fill with ice or cold water and pour the liquid jelly into the space between the two moulds. When the jelly is firm, carefully remove the ice or water from the small mould. Pour in a little warm water and quickly lift out the inner mould. Have a ready quantity of cold Spanish cream mixture to fill the space. When the filling is firm, pour over the remainder of the jelly, thus entirely encasing the filling in jelly. So much jelly there in uh, these fancy gelatin dishes. And let's finish up today's news with the weather. This piece from the Glen Innes Examiner in New South Wales. Warmer weather disturbance likely. In consequence of the approach of a distinct southern spot to the southeastern limb of the sun, an increase in temperature is likely, with a tendency to cloud formation and storminess in the next few days. Hitherto, there has been a close approximation of conditions to those indicated by the cycle, and the continuance of rain and floods in the north are features of this weather sequence. Yes, it's time to close up another newspaper as we wrap up all the news from around Australia. For February 13, 1930, this was the news. This Was The News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and give us a positive review on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday 27 February. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was The News. The News.